Now we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 45 today. So get your, get your Bibles out. Um, you're going to hear me continue to say this because I'm telling you what, we have an epidemic in our culture, in the church, churches that I never thought I would hear this stuff from, pastors I never thought I would hear this stuff from. And this is how the line goes. We'll get to this at the end of the sermon. Well, this is just how I feel. Let me help you. God does not care how you feel. All right? The Bible does not care how you feel. Well, it's the 21st century. I just feel like the Bible should change with the times. It didn't in the 20th. It didn't in the 19th. It didn't in the 18th. And just because you think yourself to be enlightened does not mean that you are. That's very important. Well, my feelings. But my feelings. But my feelings. Yeah, God does not care about your feelings. God's trying to save your soul. All right? You can feel any way you want. You can feel yourself right into hell. Or you can accept and believe your way right into heaven. That's, that's what Isaiah 45 is all about. So we're going we're gonna to dig in today. First uh, eight verses. But, but really, what I entitled the message was, is, Are you kidding me? Because if you don't read your Bible and come away going, Wow. Really? Is that what that said? And you go back and start looking? I'll be honest, I was listening to a preacher this week, and I thought, you know what? I had surgery, I was under anesthesia. Maybe some of the Bible got wiped out while I was asleep. <laughs> so I'm, it's, it's kind of comical. I've got my neck brace on, I've got my Bible, my eyes don't work, so I'm, I'm sitting here like this trying to find passages. But lo and behold, the verses were right where I left them. That tells me who goes to heaven and who does not go to heaven. What is right, what is wrong. It was amazing that the Bible was still there regardless of how the pastor felt. Regardless of how the church felt. And when you and I read the Word of God, that sense of awe should always be there. Like, are you serious? This is really what it says. All right, here's my statement now. All right, you try to catch up with this, and then you can look it up when you get home. The passage in Isaiah 45 tells us about a man named King Cyrus. King Cyrus is going to deliver the Jewish people out of bondage in Persia after 70 years. All right. Now, here's the deal, though. The story starts in Daniel 5. It's mentioned in Ezra 1. It's mentioned in Chronicles. It's mentioned here in Isaiah. It's mentioned in Jeremiah. Why is it so important? Because God tells the people that God is going to deliver his people from the Persians 205 years before it happens. Now, is that a big deal? Well, it sort of is. Because Cyrus won't be born for 150 years yet, and they already know he's going to deliver them. They won't be in captivity for another 130 years, and he's already told them who's going to deliver them. The Persian Empire doesn't even exist yet, and God tells them a Persian's going to be the one that's going to save them. Now, you start looking at that, and you go, are you kidding me? God was unfolding all of this? Sure he was. Not only so that the people of his time would be blown away and go, wow, look, God's doing exactly what he said he would do, so that we would look back and say, you mean God was putting pieces together hundreds of years at a time? What in the world is he doing for me? 
Because we get to look in at life and thinking, oh my gosh, the world's over. The United States may be going down. This may be happening. We may be having another war. Yeah. Do you think God's out of control? You think God doesn't know what's going on? You think God doesn't have a plan? You see, even though Isaiah's looking 200 years down the, down the road, he's giving hope to people and people who won't even be alive yet for another 150 years. Stand with me out of respect for God's Word. We shall tackle these eight verses. <clears throat> so this is what the Lord says to His anointed. The only time this word is used, not mentioning Jesus. God calls the anointed one Cyrus. Cyrus is a Persian atheist king. And he's called the anointed one because he's going to deliver the people. To Cyrus, whose right hand takes hold and subdues nation. Now, Cyrus is known for wiping things out. But Cyrus is a world builder, a kingdom builder. And to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and you will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places. So that you may know... What? That I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and I bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not even acknowledge me, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you may have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Can you be any more specific? I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity, create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Wow. You can be seated. Well, you ought to end an argument real quick there. <clears throat> he says, I and I alone and God. All right, that should sort us out pretty quickly, right? Either you're in or you're out. Either you believe that statement's true or you don't. We live in a culture where people worship rocks, trees. They worship Zeus. They worship Norse gods. They worship, they worship the air, the sky, the, the, the trees, whatever. But the Bible's very clear. There is but one God. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like there ought to be other gods. Well, you can feel anything you want, but your feelings do not change the facts. You know what? When I was in high school, I had, I had Algebra 1. It was the worst day of my life. It lasted for decades. And I could have said to the teacher, I feel like I deserve an A. But you know what I got? A D. I believe it was the only D I ever got. And that was grace. I'm just telling you, that was grace. But I could have said, I could have said, listen, I feel like I deserve an A. Or if we were in today's culture, my mom and dad would have come in and said, this is wrong. 
This is wrong. This is my son. He, he deserves an A. No, I, to this day, don't understand. If I don't think I could pass that class today, I got exactly what I deserved. That's probably gracious to say that I got the D. I'll, ne- I'll tell you what, it's the only, they had a deal in my high school that if you had perfect attendance, you didn't have to take the finals. I was deathly ill that year. I never missed that algebra class because I knew I could never possibly pass the final. I got my D only because I didn't have to take the final. I got what I deserved. My feelings didn't matter. Well, this is unfair. The person across the room, they, they, they understand this and they got an A. Professor didn't care about my feelings. And for some reason, we live in a time where we think God all of a sudden cares about our feelings. And it's because we've created a God in our image rather than accepting the God who created us in his image. And that we are to be under his authority. (laughs) See, God uses people that you wouldn't expect. And there's a lot of you sitting here in this room. A lot of you. A lot of us. There's no reason for God to use us. And some of you are sitting here and saying, well, man, if you only knew what I've done in my life, you don't think God knows? Well, if, you, if, if God really understood the thoughts I've had, he'd know he couldn't use me. My goodness, the sins I've committed, God, no, I'm divorced. I, I can't possibly use. And let me ask you this. If God doesn't use broken, sinful people, who's he got? That's all he's got, folks. And yet we're surprised, and you look at the story and you say, well, my goodness, there, there was all these people God could have used to deliver his people, and who does he use? The most unlikely man on the planet, King Cyrus. A man who is a world builder. He's an empire builder. And can you imagine, he's sitting one day, all right, it's been 200 years since this book was written, and he's sitting in his, on his throne one day, and somebody opens up the scrolls from the Jewish people and says, Hey, Cyrus, did you see that <clears throat> your name's here? You know, open up the book of Genesis and says, uh, It says that Joe Pudding is going to be doing this. Wouldn't that get your attention if that was you? Well, it did. It did for Cyrus. And Cyrus was such a respected leader... Throughout history, in fact, I'll just show you. Here's, here's his tomb. It's 2,600 years old. It's still in Iran if you'd like to go visit. Maybe, maybe not the best time to go there. Alexander the Great conquered Cyrus. And he stripped his tomb of all the gold and the jewels and all the money. But even Alexander the Great had so much respect for Cyrus that he left his grave alone. There it is, 2,600 years later. This is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, this is a fascinating thing about, about equality for people. Now, here's what's great about this document, besides the fact that it's 2,600 years old. Thomas Jefferson used what was on that scroll to write the Declaration of Independence. He learned about equality of people And regardless of your background coming together, that God had brought all people together as equal. Cyrus is not even a believer, folks. But yet the principles for government were there in place. In fact, if you want to know the truth, Cyrus was a Zoroastrian. Anybody studied Zoroastrianism lately? 
Okay, not lately. That was last month's study? Yeah. Well, Zoroastrianism is primarily the study of the stars. When the, the wise men came to see Jesus, more than likely they were Zoroastrians. They, they were people from Persia, from Iran, who studied the stars, and they knew to follow those stars. They knew that the Messiah was going to be born. But when you look at the story here, again, God, you're messing me up. Why would you use this world conqueror? Why would you use him? Why would you use me? I want to throw in one more story that you need to go back maybe and read a little story in your Bible called Ruth. Anybody remember that story? Just four chapters. And you look at it and you go, what's the big deal? Other than the fact that there's a lineage to David, it's a story about a lady whose husband dies and, and then her sons die. And, and it's, it's a pretty sad story. But out of the story comes Ruth and Ruth will be in the line of David and will be a major player in the history of Israel. What's wrong with the story? Does anybody know where Ruth's from? She's from Moab. Very good. Who said that? Wow. If I had something free to give you, I would give it to you, but my neck hurts. Um, She is from Moab. And let me explain to you who the people of Moab are and why the Israelites hate them. When, when Abraham and Lot split, this is back in the book of Genesis, you'll remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that story? God sends down fire from heaven to destroy all the homosexual cities. Everybody remember that story? Lot runs to a cave. It's Lot and his two daughters. This is going to get rough. His two daughters decide, unless we do something, the world's going to end. Not sure what they were thinking. They get their dad drunk, and they both sleep with their father on two consecutive nights. And from those relationships come the, well, the son's name is Moab, and the Moabites come from that relationship. So the Israelites would look at the people of Moab and say, yeah, no thanks. No thanks. And yet Ruth is a Moabitess. She comes from that line. This is not the person you think God would use. Where's the, where's the pure-blooded person? Where's the Mary that we want to be in this story? God uses people usually, usually, not because they're talented, not because they're great, not because they're amazing. Are you ready for this? But because they're available. Because they quit making excuses about their past and they say, you know what, here I am. I don't even have to see my name in a book. If God wants to use me, then I'm going to let God use me. That's what we've been called to do. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. He wrote about Cyrus 200 years in advance, but 2,000 years ago, God said, I've got a plan for each one of your lives. You know what? I need teachers, and I need plumbers, and I need car maintenance people, and I need electricians, and I need youth pastors, and I need people to teach children, and I need givers. And God created us, flaws and all, so that he could use us. And if you don't sit down occasionally and go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Pastor Cord and I do this a lot. We'll look at each other and say, are you kidding me? God actually trusts us? See, remember, we've known each other since we were 18 years old. We know a whole lot about each other. 
And we're like, God is trusting us. But then, we again, you go back and say, but all God has is a bunch of broken teenagers to lead his church. Hopefully we've grown up some along the way, but God does not have specialists. God only has broken sinners who have been saved by grace, and that's who he uses to get his work done. Now the second part, maybe it's even a little more astounding. Not only does God use who he wants, he saves who he wants. Now don't get overly worked up here, because people, people jump on this Calvinist bandwagon. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm going to tell you very clearly. Does God know who's going to be saved? Yes, he does. Because he's God. Do you have to make a choice to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes, you do. So God's free will and God's sovereignty can work together. The problem is we live at a time where it says, well, if you want to accept Jesus, raise your hand. Pray this prayer. Do you know that's nowhere in the Bible? Not one person ever in the Bible was asked to raise their hand or pray a prayer. They were challenged to personally accept Jesus as Savior, to repent of their sins, and to be baptized. There's the commitment that is laid out. But so who does God save? If God saves who he wants to save, then that means God arbitrarily just sifts people out. Because it says in this passage that we read, even though Israel doesn't pay attention, God still loves them. God still loved them because Jesus is coming through that line. That's why God loved them. Because God's love is inclusive. Even while you're kicking and screaming and hating at God, God's still loving you right where you are. But that doesn't mean that you can say, well, you know what? I'll be a Christian, but I'm going to keep living how I want. Now, that would be counter to Christianity. I come to Jesus through what? Repentance. Repentance. Say that word. Repentance. It means to turn around. And when I, I listen to these churches going, well, yes, I understand this is the way it used to be, but now I think it's okay for you to live this lifestyle and still be a Christian. Did you hear, the, did you hear what I said? I feel. Not, used to preachers would say, thus says the Lord, not I feel. So who does God save? Well, in Ephesians 1, it says that God saves everyone who is connected to Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, it says if you are in Jesus, you have Jesus, you have life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Jesus said, John 3, 16, he said, For God so loved the world, he sent his Son, that whoever would believe. All right, so there's the belief factor there. You've got to accept Jesus, but is it limited? Whomever, whomever would believe. So who does God choose to be saved? You ready? You might want to write this down. He chooses to save everyone who accepts Jesus. And if, you'll read, if you will read Ephesians 1 and you will read Romans 8 in its context, that's what both of those chapters say. And people spend their lives trying to make it say something it doesn't say. But what it says is if you have Jesus, then you have it. And if you don't, and only you know the answer to that question. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. That's a good verse. Doesn't allow much for your feelings or my feelings, does it? You alone are God. Your deeds are 
great. You know, that's why, I think that's why we use the term praise and worship. All right. God deserves praise. You know why? Because he is. We worship him because he's worthy of our praise. We pray, praise is simply saying who he is. Worship is my reaction to that. That's why I say you can be in a worship service and that does not mean that you're worshiping. So it's amazing who God chooses to use sometimes. It's also amazing who God chooses to save. Because sometimes some of the nicest people, and I'll be honest, some of the nicest people I know are further away from Jesus than some of the most horrible people I know. Because at least the people at the bottom are realizing, you know what, my way is not working. Maybe, just maybe, I need to rethink some of this. And some of the nicest people I know are not even interested in thinking about it. Because right now they have everything that this world could have to offer. And they feel like everything is good between them and God. It's frightening. It's frightening that you would base your eternal thoughts on how you feel, or worse yet, on how somebody else feels. I watch these college kids in debates, and that's their whole argument. I was taught in logic that you back yourself up with facts. Well, I feel like this is happening in our world. Okay. Well, who cares? Who cares what you think, and who cares what you feel? See, But if there is an eternal word of God, that changes everything, doesn't it? That's why Satan has gone out of his way to make sure the word of God is destroyed in the churches. It's already gone in the culture. Now he's after the churches. Because if the church won't say, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. If the church won't read the Bible and follow it, then you've got no chance. In fact, you need to find another church. I don't care what topic you're talking about. And don't tell me I'm singling anything out because when you read 1 Corinthians 6, everybody's going down. Paul doesn't leave anybody without guilt. And he says, and that's the way you used to be. It means there's a change that's supposed to happen. What's the word change? Repent. When I accept Jesus, there is a transformation that takes place. I no longer say, well, I feel like it's okay to keep doing this. No, there's a change. But at the end of this passage, the last four verses, it's just all about God. And God says, it's just me, guys. There's one God, and I'm Him. At the end of life, I'm not sure what people expect. I guess, really, you've got two options. One, you just go into the dirt, and that's it. And if that, as the old saying goes, if that's it, then nobody's lost anything. We're, we're, all, we're all on equal footing and that'll be it. Or you believe you're going to stand some kind of judgment. Is it going to be Zeus? Is it going to be Thor? According to Isaiah, there's only one God. He said, and besides me, there is no other. You think he's making a point? I am it. I'm the creator. I'm your savior. I'm the one who raised from the dead. I'm the one that's coming back. And he proves all that to these people by what? A 210-year prophecy about a guy named Cyrus from a country named Persia that doesn't even exist yet, delivering people who aren't even in bondage yet. 
And God tells them a story that in 210 years will come true. And you and I sit here today with a story of Jesus who 2,000 years ago fulfilled all the promises for us by dying on the cross. If you need to accept Jesus, you're watching online, and we're so glad you are watching online. Uh, there's a button there. I have decided. Hit that button. People will talk to you. A lot of people down in Palm Bay watching today. Thank you guys uh, for being there. Um, we also, over here, there's the decision banner. You come up here. People will answer your questions about, well, how do I embrace Jesus? How do I start my walk with him? What does that look like? But I want to ask you this question where we started. When's the last time you just read the Bible and said, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Maybe it's about God's forgiveness to you. Maybe it's about God's use of you. Maybe it's about God's plan in your life. You read it and you say, this is too good to be true. If you don't get that, then you're missing the power that's in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do mess us up. Not only do you challenge us to dig and to think, but you prove yourself over and over again that you save sometimes, as the world looks at it, unsavable people. You forgive unforgivable people. You use unusable people. But at the end of the day, at the end of time, there won't be a king or a queen or a prime minister or a dictator or a pharaoh. There will be the one living God that we fall before and we proclaim very simply, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would go to work today. Help us to set aside all our excuses about who we are, where we're from, what our bloodline is. And realize that our real bloodline runs back to the cross. In Jesus' name.